You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Melanie Locker, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. It was probably one of my lowest times. Worse than I was eight years old and my father died. Worse when I learned that I had a learning disability and probably wouldn't be able to go to medical school. I felt so down and alone, which is funny because actually things in my life were going pretty well. I had a successful medical practice. I was married with kids. I was investing. I owned a few rental properties. Life couldn't be better, except that it wasn't. I had just received a book by a guy named Jim Dolly called The White Coat Investor, and after reading it, I realized that in many ways, I was, I am, financially independent. What that means is I no longer had to work to make a living, which should have been a moment of exuberance. But instead, I was petrified because to this point in my life, I had defined myself as a physician. I had spent my whole childhood longing to become one, four years of undergraduate, four years of medical school, three years of residency, countless sleepless nights, all in this goal to become a physician. And now I was thinking of walking away. This dream I had had since childhood was no longer living up to all its promise. I no longer loved being a physician, and now I could leave. I could get away from all the stress, the fear, and anxiety. It should have made me so happy, but instead, I suffered depression and worry. If I'm not a physician, who am I? This ended up being a dark period of my life. And I had to learn how to rebuild myself. I had to learn how to find my identity outside of being a physician. Being a doctor is what I did for a living. It wasn't who I am. Now imagine if my depression was based on a whole different situation. What if my depression was that I didn't have enough? that I didn't have enough income, that I didn't have enough wealth? What if I had just gotten out of college and couldn't find a job and had to go on to food stamps just to be able to afford basic nutrition? What would that have been like? That's why I'm so excited to have Melanie Lockhart on today. You see, if I had known Melanie when I was going through my identity crisis, my depression... It would have been so much better. 
having someone there to coach you through it, to tell you that everything will be okay, that your net worth is not your self-worth, might just be the difference that gets you through. Melanie Lockhart is amazing. She is the author behind the Dear Debt blog, the host of the Mental Health and Wealth podcast, as well as the organizer of the Lola Retreat. But she's also the honest, empathic voice who talks most clearly in our community about depression, anxiety, and money. And I can't think of a better person to have on the show today in the midst of an economic recession, in the midst of a pandemic, at a time when we are worried more than ever about money as well as mental health. Melanie Lockhart, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. That was a beautiful intro. Well, I appreciate your viewpoint. We do so little talking about mental health and financial health. And in fact, that was the main reason I wanted to have you on today. So I'm excited to be able to explore these issues together. I think it's so important. So I want to take you back to a time that maybe was difficult in your life. Tell me what was happening in 2012. 2012, I had just moved from New York City to Portland, Oregon. I had moved from New York because I had graduated six months earlier with my master's degree in performance studies from New York University, and I could not find a job in New York. I had realized that I could not afford to stay in New York and pay my student loans. My partner at the time was living in Portland, Oregon, and so I thought, I'll go move in with him. I'll cut my expenses. I'll go to a lower cost of living. I'll start fresh. I'll be a big fish in a small pond and everything will be much better there. That was not exactly the case. Portland is a small city. The economy was not that great at the time. The first couple of months there, I was just able to find these temp jobs making $10 to $12 an hour. I know the first two months that I was there, making $10 an hour at a 20 an hour a week job I don't know, I was making like 800 a month. At the suggestion of a friend, I applied for food stamps. I just remember feeling so low at that point because never in my life did I think that I was going to be this working professional, that I would get a master's degree from NYU. And then so quickly after graduation, end up on food stamps. Obviously that assistance really did help me during that time. It was just for a few months, but I just remember feeling so incredibly low that it had gotten to that point. And then I did eventually get off food stamps. I did find a job making $12 an hour. But that whole 2012, I couldn't find a full-time job. I had so much debt. I think at that time, I still had close to $70,000 in debt. In total, I borrowed 81000 as you mentioned. But at that time, I had like 70000 still. I was on food stamps. And I just felt so much like I thought I did everything right. You know, go to school, work hard be responsible. And then I just felt so embarrassed that I couldn't make the progress on my student loans that I wanted. I felt guilty for going to a fancy private school. I felt so much shame for having all of this debt and nothing to show for it. I just kept repeating this like self-hatred cycle. I can't believe I went to grad school and left this full-time job in LA. I can't believe that I got into all this debt. Like I'm so stupid. And just It was a constant shame spiral that just continued to feed on itself. 
all of 2012, I remember feeling so anxious every single day I would wake up feeling like I had so much debt just saddled on my back. How am I going to get through this? How am I ever going to pay this off? I don't even have a full-time job. It was really bad to the point where I was crying probably, I feel like every day in 2012, I was lucky enough to find some counseling. And the only way I afforded that was that someone that I worked with had mentioned that they were getting services from the local college, Portland State University, their graduate program in counseling had clinic hours for people that were one semester away from graduating. Their sessions were like $15 a session, but Because I was on food stamps, I was able to negotiate it to $5 a session. I I could kind of afford $20 a month for therapy with students. And I was happy just for anyone to kind of talk to me. It really helped to realize that I had to separate my self-worth and my net worth. I had so closely identified with my money and myself. In America, we're so identified with our class, with our job, with our status, I had been on this trajectory where, you know, I was the arts and program director in Los Angeles for this nice nonprofit. I went to NYU. I had done some pretty cool things in my mind. And then to be like, woo, drop all of a sudden, you're like having these temp jobs, making 10 to $12 an hour. You're on food stamps. You're really broke. You don't know if and when you're going to find a full-time job. You can really mess with your self-esteem. I just felt completely depressed while counseling definitely helped, I kind of reached the end of 2012. I'm sure my boyfriend at the time was sick of me. My parents were sick of me. Everyone around me was probably sick of me. I was sick of me. Realizing I'm just a broken record here, constantly depressed about debt, feeling absolutely paralyzed. And so it was December 2012 that I went down the rabbit hole of the internet, started Googling how to get out of debt. And (laughs) I fell down the rabbit hole of personal finance blogs. And I stayed up late binging all of these personal finance blogs and how to get out of debt. I was super inspired and I resonated a lot with these real people who had gotten out of debt because quite frankly, I had never met anyone in my real life who had actually gotten out of debt. Not that I know of. I was inspired, but I also felt like there was kind of a big component missing. So number one, no one was really talking about the emotional and mental health aspects of debt. I feel so anxious and depressed every single day about this and no one's really talking about it. And then also at that time, a lot of the blogs I was reading, it was about credit card debt and people living off $100,000 and selling their stuff to pay it off. And I was like, I'm a minimalist. I literally have nothing to sell. I don't make 100,000. I think I was making 20,000 at that time. I got the good debt was student loan debt. And so I wanted this new perspective of what does it look like when you got into debt doing quote, all the right things and you have the good debt. You're also not making six figures and you're a minimalist. You don't have stuff to sell because you've never really had a spending problem. Like I did have money saved. I never had a spending problem. It's just, I got into a bunch of student loan debt because I thought going to NYU would buy me status. And I know that sounds lame and weird, but that's the truth. I wanted to start a blog to figure out that perspective. So in January, 2013 is when I launched Dear Debt, the blog that really helped me chronicle my journey out of student loan debt. And in that first blog post, I say that it's a do or die situation. And so it was really serious. I was like, I need to pay off this debt. There's no other option. Once I just boiled my depression and anxiety down to it, I was like, if I really want to tackle these things, The only thing that I can do is get out of debt. 
there's no other option. I started the blog to keep myself accountable and have just been working ever since. And I actually did pay off my debt in December, 2015, which was amazing. That was actually one year earlier than I had anticipated because when I started the blog, the very first blog post, which is still on the internet and very hilarious to read now, by the way, I keep everything as is. It's like a hilarious archive. You can see that I said, I want to pay off this debt in four years. I had 57,000 at that time. And I have no idea how I'm going to pay this off in four years, but that's my goal. And then it just seemed like the universe was conspiring with me and a lot of crazy things happened over that time. And I was able to pay it off in three years instead of four. I had made that stand. I had said, no matter what, I'm paying this off. It's been a journey ever since. And I've been kind of working on a lot of different projects since then. As I mentioned in the introduction, at least for me, depression in many ways was an identity crisis. Talk a little bit about how your identity shifted leaving college to hitting this roadblock in 2012. And again, then what happened to your identity as you started blogging? When I moved from New York City to Portland, Oregon and hit this huge depressive state, it was kind of an identity crisis in the sense that when you're depressed, you feel like you're not hitting your stride or doing things that you want to do. For me, I have a background in the arts. I had worked in nonprofits, both organizing arts educational content for students and also working as a teaching artist. There was no arts jobs in Portland that paid. So I wasn't working in the arts. I also wasn't inspired to work on my stuff by myself. And so when you feel like all of your points of expression are hindered, I think that can cause an identity crisis because you feel like these are things that I had relied on to make me happy. A lot of us do rely on our jobs for our identity, you know, whether we believe it or not. And I think a lot of people realize that when they find themselves unemployed for the first time or underemployed, where you're like, who am I without my job? And I think I was facing that because I had so closely identified with my job and my status and my title. And here's what I'm going to be doing, helping the world and working in the arts. And you're in that depressive state. You really have to face those big existential questions about who am I without this income and without this title, without this job and without this network, without this expression. You know, depression really just kind of puts a veil on your thinking and your whole kind of way of life. It slows everything down. It makes everything incredibly difficult to do. I always say if you're in a really big depressive mood, even just showering and brushing your teeth is a great accomplishment at times. And that's a really interesting perspective. I've never really thought about it that way, that depression is like an identity crisis, but it totally is. And I have another kind of saying that actually resonates with that. I always say that I know I'm depressed when I say I don't feel like myself. I can't really describe what that feels like or what that means, except In the most literal way, I don't feel like myself. When you're feeling depressed and anxious, that's the best way I can describe it is you just feel like something's off. You're not hitting your stride. The things that used to bring you pleasure no longer bring you pleasure, or you're not just, you're not motivated anymore to do it. You just kind of wonder like, what's the point of going on? And I know that sounds super dramatic, but I mean, those are the places that your mind can go to when you're really depressed. Why should I continue? What's my purpose in life if I can't do X, if I can't do Y, if I don't have money? Also, just getting a little bit scientific, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. First part in the pyramid is taking care of yourself, having food, having shelter. And if you feel threatened 
because you don't have money to just take care of that very basic rung of self-care. Of course, your identity is going to be in question and your mental health is going to be in question. So to your point about how my identity changed with blogging, you know, obviously like any blogger, kind of started off rough, didn't really know what I was doing. I was writing to my mom, basically. (laughs) Blogging really kind of helped me get back into my creative roots. The premise of Dear Debt is a blog about breaking up with debt. The main crux of the blog is writing these breakup letters to debt, you know, kind of like a Dear John letter, you write a Dear Debt letter. I had written all of these breakup letters to debt, anthropomorphizing debt into this person. And so you know, I had all these different scenarios in my head as if debt was a person and I would write these breakup letters to debt. I would also post monthly updates about kind of how much I paid off, my side hustle adventures. I would talk about my money and mental health journey. I also invited others to write Dear Debt letters. And so it was beautiful to get these breakup letters from other people. And you can still see them on the site where we have tons of amazing Dear Debt letters over the past seven years. Some are super funny, some are heartbreaking, some are more light. Some people say like, thank you debt for helping me not be homeless. And so it's been a really interesting kind of way to address your emotional relationship with debt. I was slowly building my identity back up with the blog because I'm doing this creative project that's just for me. It's not for money. It's not for anybody else. Even though it'd be cool to have readers, this is helping me address my mental health and my relationship with debt in a fun, creative, safe way. And then also it helped me build community. That's how I started getting readers and other blogger friends to participate. And people were intrigued about the project. People were like, oh, this is new. This is different. I've never heard of something like this. So people wanted to participate. And then also having that community aspect helped put me back together in a way because suddenly I had all these anonymous cheerleaders, these online cheerleaders who were saying, you could do it. You can get out of debt, like keep going. And I would have never guessed that, you know, blogging would have created this whole community of people who would support me and help me get out of debt. Blogging was a safe space to kind of experiment with what I wanted to do next. And I always say that now when blogging and or a side hustle is a great way to experiment with something without so much to lose, like a full-time job or like putting your whole life into it. And so it was a great way for me to experiment and to grow. And I think I did slowly but surely put my identity back together and find my own voice, literally. It hits me as I listen to your story that you started with a situational depression, a depression based on debt and joblessness, and that caused a loss of identity. And the reassertion of your identity was not necessarily paying off that debt, but starting that creative blogging project, which started feeling a lot more like you. The debt itself would take years to pay off. Mm -hmm. So the situation took a long time to change, but your trajectory to getting better sounds like it started when you took action to reassert who you were. It definitely got better when I took action to assert who I was. And then also taking action in such a specific way helped me combat this kind of powerlessness that I felt because all of 2012, I just felt literally paralyzed by my debt and I just felt stuck and I didn't know what to do. And like I said, I was in this constant broken record circle, just driving myself insane. I just realized I have to do something different. And I thought, what if I spend all of this energy that I'm thinking about my debt 
into something positive because I felt like I was spending 20 out of 24 hours a day thinking about my debt. So what if I transfer this energy into something positive? That's how the blog was born. And it literally has changed my life in every single way. I've heard you differentiate between situational depression and clinical depression. And as Mm -hmm. describing 2012 for you was a very situational episode based on debt and what was going on in your life. But this was not the first time you had dealt with depression, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Talk about your teenage years. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I think just to clarify for your audience, you know, situational depression, kind of as it sounds, is based on a certain situation. A lot of people right now, given the pandemic, could very well be in situational depression and anxiety. It's totally normal and common right now. And clinical depression and anxiety is really about brain chemistry, about genetics. And when I was a teenager, I had my first mental health episode when I was 16. I have a family history of bipolar. I've had several family members die by suicide. My grandpa on my mom's side, my cousin, you know, my father suffers from depression and anxiety as well. And so I was destined to have mental health issues in a way, given my genetic history. Like if you look at the lineage, you're like, hmm, oh, cancer runs in the family or high blood pressure runs in the family. It's like, oh, this is the card that, you know, you're being dealt with given everything you see in your past. In my teenage years, you know, you're hitting puberty, your hormones are going crazy, you're having such another crisis of identity in a way. I just felt so extremely depressed and I wasn't even sure why, but like I didn't like myself. I didn't want to exist anymore. That was the first time that I really felt suicidal. And like, it's really hard to say that because I know it's hard for people that that have never experienced this oh my gosh, you've thought about that? Or like, it can be taboo. You've thought about ending your life. I mean, it's very scary if you've ever been there as well. If you've been there, it's really frightening. If you've never been there, it's kind of shocking that, wow, other people have experienced this. You know, I would say for almost probably about six months to a year, I just felt super depressed and suicidal. And it was to the point I was in this sick mental place where I was like fantasizing about how I would do it, which it's not healthy, clearly. Once you kind of get to that point, you're just like, "Mm, this is not good. I don't think I was ever close enough to actually do it. But like when you're thinking about ways, that's clearly kind of taking a step a little too far. And luckily, I did eventually break down and tell my parents, I've been thinking about suicide and I don't feel okay and I don't want to exist anymore. (laughs) That was so difficult for my mom who had lost her father to suicide when she was five years old and I'm her only child. And she was just, you know, devastated by the prospect of losing her father and her only daughter to this horrible thing. And so they immediately, you know, got me into therapy and I went to a psychiatrist It was a long journey initially with psychiatry. I felt like I was on seven different pills. You know, a lot of people say bad things about psychiatry. And from those years, I can definitely agree because it felt like every single symptom I gave them, they would give me a new pill. And now thinking in retrospect, I was on like seven different pills when I was 16 years old. In my experience, psychiatrists tend to be very cold and clinical. 
not like warm and fuzzy like therapists tend to be. And so I just felt like I would go in there for literally 10 minutes and I would say, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling anxious. I'm having difficult sleeping. And then suddenly I'd have three new pills and there are real side effects with medication. I remember at one point I felt like all I was doing was sleeping and it wasn't because of the depression. It was because of the medication. I remember sometimes feeling dizzy or feeling nauseous. You know, there's an adjustment period for your body and your brain to be on all this medication. Eventually I stabilized and kind of started feeling better. And I would say by 18, I felt I'm no longer feeling this way and that I feel okay. And so what's interesting is that from 16 to 23, I was on medication. I don't recommend this at all, but at 23, I like went off cold turkey. I was on so much medication for pain and I was just feeling kind of sick. And I was like, I don't want to be on all this medication. And so I just made like a really horrible decision to stop. The withdrawal, cold turkey, just felt like it was messing with my brain in the most insane way. I was actually off medication for 10 years from 23 to 33. I did have several episodes of depression in that time, including 2012, when I I think I was around 27 at that point, where I didn't have medication. And so I think I felt super proud that, oh, I had gone 10 years without medication. Like I've conquered this. I don't need it. Yeah, I've still had, you know, instances of depression. I've been able to beat it without chemicals. And then a couple of years ago, I just fell into another deep, deep, deep depression and tried to meditate. I tried to exercise. I tried to eat well. I tried to do everything. It didn't hurt, but it wasn't helping to the degree that it needed. Like I would wake up every single day feeling this impending sense of gloom. I mean, there was a lot of things going on in my personal life at that time too that I think were affecting it, but I just felt once again, not okay. And so I've been on medication again for about the past three years. My psychiatrist said, we're going to keep you on this for a while because this is your second major depressive episode. I think I've read a study and I think my my psychiatrist confirmed this, that if you've had a major depression, you have like a 50% chance of having a relapse. I was definitely the case for that. You know, I just completely fell back into it. And so I, I felt a lot of shame actually going back to medication. I felt like, wait, what? I went 10 years without medication. I had maybe two or three like minor episodes of depression during that time. And I was able to go through it without this, like, why now? Am I weak? Am I, you know, whatever. And then I just realized I'm not weak. I'm actually strong for getting help. If I had a broken arm or high blood pressure, I would go to the doctor and I'd get on medication and I would manage it. Depression and anxiety are just like high blood pressure. I have to manage that because I do have clinical depression and anxiety. It is part of my brain chemistry. It's part of my genetics. Like I said, I feel like I was destined for it in some ways, given my health history with my family. And so now I've just kind of accepted it. Other people take pills for cholesterol and diabetes and high blood pressure every day, and no one thinks twice about it. I'm taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety pills because that's what I need to do to manage it helps me kind of stay in this range. You know, I always like to describe the process to people for people who've never been on medication. What is it like? Do you feel really numb? Do you completely just kind of turn off? And I say no. So if you imagine your emotions from zero to a hundred, let's say zero, you're completely catatonic, not being able to move in bed, kind of just numb. A hundred, you're completely hysterical, crying, wailing, feel like you're never going to be able to stop crying. (laughs) 
I say like antidepressants kind of keep me in that 30 to 70 range. I still have emotions. I still cry. I still feel anxious and depressed, but I don't get to those levels where I'm unable to function and it literally affects every aspect of my life where I can't go on. I've heard people describe coming out of a depression as the fog lifting. And so compare and contrast a little bit for me what the fog lifting felt like for these clinical depressions that happen every so often in your life versus that situational depression that you had in 2012 because of the debt issue. So I feel like coming out of depression for the clinical part is kind of going back to feeling like yourself again. Suddenly you don't wake up with this impending sense of doom. Suddenly you wake up and you're like, huh, what do I want to do today? And you actually look forward to doing something. I feel like when you're depressed, you lose a lot of hope. And I think that's what can be very difficult for people is when you start spiraling down this hopelessness. So when you start continuing without hope, it's really hard to go on because whether we think so or not, hope is this thing that keeps us going in the background. Getting out of clinical depression, you know, it does feel like a fog is lifting. It feels like you have a clear path. It feels like you actually see a path. (laughs) Whereas when you're really depressed, you're like, I don't even see a path going forward. Why do I want to continue? Like, I don't see a path. I don't see how this is going to work. I don't see any options. Being able to get out of that just felt so amazing. And then I think for situational depression, Obviously, it took a lot of work for me to get out of debt. I was side hustling for seven days a week for about five years, and that had its own mental health effects and toll on my body and exhaustion. There was kind of a sweet victory once I was able to tackle that problem and get out of debt finally, but it was also kind of bittersweet, you know, this kind of feeling like I had held on to this for so much of my identity. Like I started this blog, Dear Debt, and people have been following my journey this whole time. And like now I don't have debt. And also that was the first time in my entire life I had been without debt. Like I had signed up for student loans when I was 17. When my dad was like, hey, want to go to college? Here you go. (laughs) Signed up for student loans, didn't really know what I was doing. And I had gotten out of debt when I was 31. I had been in debt my whole entire life. And so I kind of went through a different identity crisis when I paid off my debt, where I was like, who am I without debt? Who am I without this? What am I going to do now? And luckily, you know, I was able to pivot to doing Lola retreat, which is the women in money event, because I figured debt is not my full-time jam anymore. What's going to be my next project to keep me going? Yeah. I think there are differences when you quote, get out of the fog with clinical depression and situational depression dealing with this pandemic, a lot of us are depressed and anxious for many different reasons. It's something you have to manage. And so every day I just try to find moments of joy right now. And a lot of my practice with depression and anxiety has been focusing on mindfulness. Actually, there's this book called Mindfulness. The subtitle is an eight-week program to deal with the frantic world or something similar. And that was the book that actually changed my life and really helped cultivate my mindfulness practice. And and mindfulness at its core is really just about trying to stay in the moment because so much of our lives is spending about obsessing about the past or worrying about the future. We spend so much time doing that. And that means we're not really living in the present. If we can really just try to focus and enjoy what is beautiful around us, we can try to mitigate some of those factors that are leading to depression and anxiety. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is 
there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I just want to say I so identify with some of what you said about the differences between situational and clinical depression. I've never had a clinical depression, but I hear that it does feel like the fog is lifting or like you said, finding a path when you didn't even think a path was possible before. For me, the situational depression of dealing with my financial situation felt like a hundred pound weight on my shoulders. Getting past that was a matter of relieving myself of that hundred pound weight. But like you were saying, I also identified with it because being a physician was all that I ever knew. So I hated the weight, and yet I was afraid of what life looked like without it. And I think your debt journey sounds very similar. 
it seems to me the blog really helped you through some of those issues. I imagine that mental health was a big part of the blog from the beginning, but there was a transition point when you were looking at your statistics and found a search term that you didn't expect. Tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about that. Probably about year one, I was looking at my, you know, Google Analytics and kind of what search terms led to my blog. And I saw that someone had searched, I want to kill myself because of debt. And I just remember feeling so devastated that someone would look for that and find my blog. I was also curious, like I've never really written about this in these exact terms. So I was curious how someone found me that way. But It wasn't such a far stretch since I had talked about debt and depression before. I just was obsessed about it. Like, who is this person? I wanted to reach them. And obviously with these analytics, they're totally anonymous. Like, I don't know who did that. I decided to write a post called, please seek help. As if I was writing to that person, you know, saying debt is not a death sentence. You are not alone. You are not a loan you know, writing this whole kind of thing to that person that it is not worth dying over. Like that is not worth dying over. It's not worth hurting your family or hurting yourself. Sure enough, because I had written a blog post about it, then the search traffic continued. And I hate to say it, but to this day, it's one of my highest traffic search terms. And it's been six years now and it still doesn't get easier. I get emails so often from people who are on the brink of suicide. And it's been so difficult to deal with those emails. And I respond to every one of them because I know when you're in that dark of a place, like you just want someone to listen. And it's so funny because a lot of people email me and they think I'll never respond. They think I'm not a real person. And they're like, oh, you responded. (laughs) You know, they just think they're going to like spew off this very emotional, intense email and that it's just going to go off into the ether and they're going to feel a little bit better afterwards. But I mean, to me, if someone's Googling that or reaching out, that's a call for help. And I want to do my part to try to save their life if I can. And obviously, like, I don't have all the answers, but I try to be a listening ear because a lot of these people, sadly, they don't feel comfortable talking to their parents or even their spouse about it. Sadly, I've had a lot of people who say, I'm in so much debt. I feel like I can't even talk to my spouse about this. And I feel like they would just be better off without me. And actually a lot of men email me with that kind of shame spiral where they feel like I'm supposed to be the provider. I'm supposed to take care of my wife and kids and I can't, I would rather just die. And that has been so hard. And also like interesting for me, because, you know, as a woman, I don't necessarily experience it that way, but I can imagine what that feels like and kind of the pressure that men feel. I try to reframe it that you know, your family needs you. Your family would be so much more devastated without you. I know from my mom's personal experience, her life changed forever when her dad died by suicide when she was five and she was the last person to see him. Even though I never met him, it's a stain on the family history. It's like this cutting off the branch of the family tree. You'll feel those effects forever. I try to encourage people to get help and, you know, talk about it with their families if they can, or or just slowly try to fix the problem, but not to go that far because it's just so devastating. Through these various blog posts, through so many emails, it's just kind of turned to this whole thing. So kind of over the past seven years, obviously Dear Debt was always kind of known as focusing on the emotional mental health side of money. I've never been like a hard numbers blogger, like X ways to improve your credit. That's not ever been me. (laughs) So I've been kind of this other type of emotional blogger, but then I really started to become 
known for this focus on money and mental health and debt and depression kind of by accident because of that search term. Every September since 2016, I started this suicide prevention blog tour. So September is um, Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And so for the past couple of years, I've gotten all my blogger friends together to write blog posts, to do podcasts about debt and depression, suicide and money. And it's been great to have 30 to 40 people create content during this time. Some bloggers email me and say, I'm so glad you're doing this. I've actually lost my brother or a neighbor to suicide, or I've felt this way too. Or I have other bloggers who say, I get so many emails from people saying, this saved my life or this really helped me. So that's been interesting too to see. And all of that kind of really helped me transition to my other project that I'm focusing on now is mentalhealthandwealth.com. So just two months ago, I launched mentalhealthandwealth.com, which as it sounds is focusing on the intersection of money and mental health. Along with that, I launched the Mental Health and Wealth Show, which is my own podcast. I think we have six episodes out now, and we focus a lot about debt and depression, the effects of motherhood and mental health, what is it like to deal with extreme loss and tragedy, and how do you build resilience? You know, it's just been a great platform to dive into this topic deeper. You know, I just kind of realized as Dear Debt was growing in this direction and so many people were like, oh, money and mental health, debt and depression, that's Melanie. And I just kind of default became known as this person. And I was like, let's run with it then. Like, I'm really passionate about talking about it. And I found out that the URL mental health and wealth was available. And I was like, what? (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) And so here I am talking about mental health and wealth as like my main project. And you've mentioned before that you are neither a mental health nor a financial expert. Mm -hmm. Does that make your platform less or more powerful? I think the answer is both. So, you know, on my social media profiles and on the website, I clearly state I am not a financial professional, nor am I a medical professional. And I say that as a disclaimer, obviously, because I can't give quote professional medical financial advice. So, you know, obviously if you're really in need of help, talk to a counselor who's licensed, talk to a psychiatrist, talk to a certified financial planner. That's not me. So in that way, I think it's maybe not as solution oriented for some people, but I think it is powerful in the sense that I am a real person with a real story because I know that when I started blogging, what got me into it was the personal stories. Obviously we can connect to therapists and psychiatrists, but sometimes they feel kind of removed because you're like, do you even know what I'm experiencing? I don't know if you do. (laughs) It's good to kind of share my part of the story to share with people that they're not alone and that it's possible to get out of debt and it's possible to deal with your mental health issues. And so that's kind of the platform that I'm going on is that personal stories and sharing can help open up the conversation And then I want to help lead people to those professional resources. So I can hopefully be the person that kind of brings them into this acknowledgement, this space of like, I'm not alone. Maybe I can get help. And it's like, oh, by the way, I have a whole resources page on my website where you can go to the crisis text line. You can go to the National Suicide Hotline. You can find affordable therapy at Open Path Collective. You can try to refer people to the right places, even if they're not me. How widespread do you think mental health difficulties are when associated with finances? Is this really very common in our community? I think it's a lot more common than we think. 
I felt like when I started talking about it, that literally no one was talking about it. And so obviously I felt so alone, but as you realize with blogging, once you put yourself out there, so many people come out of the woodwork and they're like, oh my gosh, I felt the same way too. I can't tell you how many anonymous comments and also emails from people that I've gotten that were like, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've been feeling the same way or I have family members that have been dealing with this too, or I've recovered from something similar. When things are taboo, like money and mental health, we just think they're not normal because no one talks about them. But the more you talk about them, the more you realize that so many other people are dealing with the same thing and it's becoming more normal. And that's really the goal of mentalhealthandwealth.com and the Mental Health and Wealth Show is to normalize this and show how many people are dealing with this. You know, I always say that money and mental health are so inextricably linked And what I mean by that is, let's say you're deep into debt, you don't have income, obviously that's going to affect your mental health in some way, whether severe or not. If you have mental health issues like severe depression and anxiety, that's going to affect your spending. That's going to affect the way you save. That's going to affect the way you can earn an income. They're completely inextricably linked, similar to the way I feel like it's really important that we look at the mind-body connection, because I don't know why in Western medicine, we don't seem to look at them together. I think it's really important that we look at money and mental health together, because there is a direct impact. If we continue to ignore it, it's only going to get worse. And I'm really scared right now with everything that's going on in the world, that it's just going to continue to get much worse. And that's why I'm kind of excited and nervous to continue with my projects. I feel like it's more salient than ever. Looking back at your trajectory, the mental health issues, what I imagine at some point in your life you looked at as your major handicap, how does it feel that that is now a big part of what you do for a living and how you spend your time? It's really interesting to have this thing that for so long just felt like an albatross and something that was weighing you down. And then now you're so comfortable talking about it and breaking taboos. And it can be really kind of scary in a way. Like I remember when I first launched the podcast, I had been blogging about this for a long time now, five, six, seven years now, but podcasting is my voice. It's my storytelling. It's kind of a more intimate platform in a way. People can have a trust factor much faster with the podcast. You know, that was kind of scary to put myself out there in that way, but it's also been exhilarating to kind of assert myself in this realm and to be like, I'm going to be strong and continue to put myself out there and to continue talking about these issues to help other people. And it's also just been great to connect with others and share their stories as well, because I know that I just have a small sliver of experience that people can relate to, but I interview a ton of different people on the podcast with different worldviews, different situations. I want to talk about it all. So it's been an interesting journey for sure. Before I get to my final question, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that this is an incredibly difficult time for people stuck at home because of the COVID pandemic, worried about a huge economic recession. If you are out there right now and you're in trouble or feeling really bad or God forbid thinking about something like suicide, what are a few quick resources to help people right away? So my favorite resource is the crisis text line. You can text home to 741-741. So I have used the crisis text line once in the past when I was kind of feeling like fever pitch. I feel like I can't go on right now. And like, I I don't know what to do. And they have trained crisis counselors to text you. And what's great about that is it's over text because 
I don't know about you, but if you're in a really emotional place, sometimes you're like, I am crying too much. I can't even talk to you because you won't even be able to hear me. (laughs) It'll be all muffled and weird and we can't communicate. So what's great about that is this over text. So you can communicate even if you're crying hysterically or numb or whatever feeling you're feeling. And then also what I like about it is that it's general in the sense that it's crisis. So I think a lot of people feel like if they're not suicidal, that they can't get help. You know, there's a lot of suicide prevention lines, which is great. Obviously, I highly recommend those as well. But I feel like there's a whole other population of people who are severely depressed or in crisis, but they may not be suicidal and feel like they are locked out of services and resources. And so that's why I like the crisis text line, because it can be for anyone in crisis, whatever that means to you. You know, if someone died and you're feeling in crisis, you got a a scary diagnosis and you're feeling in crisis. If you're just feeling like, I don't know how to get through this on my own. And that's a crisis. You can contact them. I also recommend openpathcollective.org for affordable therapy. That's how I found my current therapist. I believe they have therapy sessions between I think 30 and $60. Obviously plug my own site, mentalhealthandwealth.com. You can check that out. And then also, I think it's just really important for everyone to realize that everyone is going through this right now and it's affecting everyone's mental health. I mean, I am honestly a little bit nervous about how this is going to affect the global mental health of people. I feel like so much time alone, so much time breaking off our routines. Like I know I've been talking about therapy. I spent so much time coming up with a routine through boxing, through meditation, through friends to keep my mental health together. And now all of that is gone. And it feels like I'm just reverting back to what I used to do, back to what it was. And I've been having some shame about that in therapy. And my therapist was like, okay, let me tell you, everyone is backsliding right now. Nobody has a routine. Everyone's dealing with this trauma collectively everyone's backsliding in a way. So don't feel bad if you're not like super productive and your whole routine that kept you together is suddenly not there because it's just not possible. One of my main outlets was boxing. I can't hit mitts or a bag and I can't do that in my apartment complex because I don't have one and also I'm on the second floor and my neighbors would be pissed at me. (laughs) This huge outlet for my mental health is no longer available to me. And so that's been really difficult for me to deal with. And I think a lot of people are dealing with something similar. And so if you can recognize that this is a very difficult time, as my therapist said, everyone is backsliding in some way, big or small, and you don't need to feel bad about it because we just don't know what's going on. And we literally are dealing with a collective trauma where part of our brain is just kind of trying to survive. Be gentle with yourself because I'm always feeling so guilty that I'm not as productive. I'm feeling guilty that I'm eating junk again. I'm feeling we're all just trying to get through the day right now. And I think it's important to do what you need to do to get through the day. And something that actually has helped me, I created a what makes me feel good list, taking a bath, petting my cats, drinking tea, journaling, meditating, watching trashy TV, (laughs) talking to a friend, dancing, when you're in that place where you're so dark and you're starting to spiral, you're not in like a a rational thinking space where you can just be like, let me do this. So I literally have that list on my fridge. And it's like, when I start to feel that way, I just go to the list and pick one. So I've been taking a lot more baths. (laughs) I've been dancing some more and you know, that's okay. Everyone should create that list. It's not a cure for extreme depression and anxiety, but even if you could just move the needle a little bit to where you're like, okay, this is more tolerable. 
So Melanie Lockhart, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. Your story is amazing because you've taken who you are, even some of those pieces of yourself that have been difficult and not only accepted them, but celebrated them and now use them to help other people get better. And I think that's an incredibly powerful story. So before we close up, can you tell us what's up next in your life and where we can find you? Yeah, what's next is more podcast episodes in the Mental Health and Wealth Show. So definitely check me out at deardet.com, mentalhealthandwealth.com, also lullaretreat.com, and melanielockert.com. You can find me a lot of different places, and I'm at Melanie Lockert on social media. This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Melanie Lockert. That's a wrap. Okay, I hate to admit this, but likely Earn and Invest will not become a daily podcast. Therefore, look forward to those Monday episodes, which are usually panels, and those Thursday episodes, which are individual interviews. On other days, feel free to join us on the Earn and Invest Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. And we talk about all sorts of topics similar to what you hear on the podcast. In fact, the other day, we were having a great conversation about the financial independence retire early movement and the effect of an economic downturn. Most people have been concerned that the fire movement probably would disappear as the stock market took a tumble. But indeed, we found in 2008 that the modern day retirement early movement probably started during the 2008 downturn and is still growing and alive today. The name of the article was the retire early movement is thriving during crisis. Here's how. And there are a lot of comments. One was from Kevin Thompson. He said, I think it'll be tougher, take longer for many, especially to get over the 1 million mark. However, I think the situation will trim people's budgets in a good way. It'll teach people how to save more, spend less, and go without things. And Diana Falk responded, I agree. What a great opportunity for others to prepare and learn. Rick McGinley said, absolutely. And what a great time to join during a tough economic time. And Daniel Gerton said, this virus showed that's even more important to be financially independent than we previously thought. And I think this is an important idea that paying attention to your personal finances, learning about saving and investing for some people, side hustling for other people, it might be increasing their current income at their W-2 job. All of these things are important. Being well prepared may not fix our problems, especially when the economy seems to be going in a downward trend or if the stock market is falling, being better prepared, having a better handle on your finances, having less debt, all of these things are going to help you in the future. So come hang out with us at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. We'll see you there. Now back to the show. So we're back here with Bradley Rice. Bradley is a great supporter of the show. In fact, he was one of the early listeners for the What's Up Next podcast. And if I remember correctly, Bradley, didn't you win a book? I did win a book. Yes, Grant Sabatier's book. So I was lucky enough to win that. Definitely something I was interested in. And you guys got me a signed copy. So that was awesome. We try to give away books, especially from our podcast guests. So whenever we have anyone on, we say, if you write a book, if you have a course, let us know. The more free stuff we can give away from the Facebook group is usually where it happens or sometimes on Twitter, the better. And that actually came from Grant's hands. So Grant was supposed to have his publicist send that to you. And the publicist, for some reason, it never made it out. 
And I emailed him and he went over and actually hand signed it, obviously, and then took that to the post office and sent it while he was doing his financial freedom tour. So (laughs) just a little funny story. So these are strange times. You and I were just talking off air about the fact that we're sitting in our homes in the middle of the day. For me, I do part-time hospice work, but it is not abnormal for me to be out and about. How about you? Tell me about your work schedule a little bit. Over the last seven years, I have worked from home. So this isn't as life-changing for me as it is for most people. I know a lot of people are coping with working from home or hopefully not, but sometimes people are coping with not working right now. For me, things haven't changed quite that much. It's more like I can't go grab a burger when I want to. But my typical day is I work in the mornings typically from about 8.30 to 12. And that's where I try to get most of my work done. I guess I found that's my most productive hours of the day. So I do work about 15 or 20 hours a week. I try to get those in in the morning to be as productive as possible. As disruptive as this is for both you and I, for people who've lost their jobs, this is an incredibly disruptive time. I certainly see that in our community. There are a group of people who are chomping at the bit saying, boy, I can't wait till things open up again. I want to get back into the workforce. And then there's another group of people who really look at this time as an opportunity to learn new skills, to take on a new side hustle or to pivot. And in fact, that's what we're going to talk about today. You are an expert in Salesforce. And if we're talking about what one possible pivot might be for people who are out there who are out of work, or at least stuck at home right now, Salesforce is quite a possibility. Talk to me first and foremost, what is Salesforce? Salesforce is what is called a CRM system. So that's a customer relationship management tool. To try to put it into layman's terms, it is effectively the computer program that runs the back end of a company. So if you think about companies, it's not the website that you're looking at when you go to purchase a product. That's not what you're seeing. It's the back end of that. So it's everything from targeting new leads to marketing to people effectively to selling them something. It's where the customer support team lives, where they log cases and interact with you and you have a problem. It's all those things. So it's really for internal employees at a company. And it takes the business processes of a company and it automates those and makes them as efficient as possible so that these companies that may have these really chaotic or huge business processes that are hard to organize, and it simplifies those down so that you can bring a new employee on and have them up and running by lunchtime and they're good to go. So yeah, it's just a tool that makes companies with complex business processes seem to be pretty simple to use. And it seems to me like this is a widely used tool. So in other words, many, many companies in the United States are using it and therefore there's a need for people who know how, is it to use or to sell Salesforce? Yeah, so it is not to sell Salesforce. I am a horrible salesperson. I would not succeed in this job if it were uh, anything related to sales, but it's what I would consider sort of like a white collar tech career. It's a very millennial type career. There's a lot of flexibility for work from home or you can come into an office. They have somewhere over 150,000 customers across the globe. Anything from, you know, a mom and pop shop with five employees all the way up to Amazon.com, Coca-Cola, all your big enterprise companies. It's pretty amazing. And they even have a, a nonprofit offering where Salesforce is totally free for up to 10 employees if you run a nonprofit. So it's very popular in places like private schools or small dental and doctor's offices and things like that, especially if you have a nonprofit angle because it's totally free for them. 
So what it sounds like is we have this disruptive new tool that is being utilized by a huge number of companies. And of course, what that produces is a scarcity of people who know how to use that tool and then can help companies implement it. And I assume that's the big reason why Salesforce, in your opinion, is a great field to get into because there are just not that many people who know how to use it correctly. That's exactly it. I think you hit the nail on the head and it's not the best kept secret in the world. If you Google Salesforce, you're going to get tons of results as far as how the company is doing. They've grown massively over the last 10 or 12 years. They just built the biggest skyscraper in San Francisco as their headquarters. I don't know what their exact value is, but it's tens of billions of dollars. So if you're looking at this as a potential thing you might want to look at, a lot of people are worried about, well, what's the stability of the company? Is this something good long-term? In my opinion, it absolutely is. Do companies come and go? Sure. But as far as the track history and how they're doing, it's a very well-structured company. So there's absolutely a scarcity of certified professional Salesforce workers at this point. And a lot of people get confused. We don't actually work for Salesforce. We just support and enable Salesforce as a company. So like you mentioned, Salesforce is doing an amazing job globally at selling their product. They're selling this cloud software to companies. And the problem is they don't have enough professionals that know how to work with this tool to help their clients. So what's happening is when Salesforce is selling their product to these clients, the clients are excited to use it. They just bought this new shiny tool and they're ready to get going. And then they find out there are no qualified employees or consultants to help implement the tool for the next three to six months. And they're put on this wait list. And in that time, they may choose to use a different CRM system, or they may decide that they don't want to use Salesforce anymore and get cold feet. So the worst thing in the world for Salesforce is to have to have any amount of time where a potential customer has to wait for a qualified Salesforce expert to implement this tool for them. So what they've done is they've created an amazing 100% free training platform called Trailhead. It's incredible. You earn badges, you get points, you can compete with friends and coworkers to ramp up your skills. The other really cool thing about that is that you actually get what they call super badges, which are widely recognized as how adept you are at using the tool. And anybody can do this. So you're talking, if you come from a tech background, you're going to fly through this training. But we have a guy who, uh, he used to be like a museum coordinator. Um, so he'd coordinate all the events at the museum. And he pivoted into working in Salesforce. And within six months, he was certified and landed a job making over 70 grand. And he had no background in this. So I know we have a lot of people with sort of limiting beliefs where they go, I don't know anything about tech. I'm not a tech person. So I wouldn't let that turn you away. Like I said, it's totally free. So if you want to give it a test drive and see if you like it, then there's really no risk. I want to go back over this to make sure I understand. So Salesforce created this tool, but realized that in order to have the tool implemented, it needed to have a certain number of trained individuals who could help different companies utilize that tool. They didn't have the wherewithal time or interest in creating their own force of technologists so they made a training program, which anyone who wants to can engage, but you have to pass through the different hurdles, get the different badges. But if you do that correctly, then not only do you come out having a skill, which you can then get paid a very reasonable salary for, but Salesforce, the company benefits because they now have technicians out there to help these different businesses, which means that they don't have to worry about these companies going and using a different CRM management type tool. 
I would say that's exactly right. And really the typical path for a quote unquote Salesforce professional is if you're coming out of the gates and you're hearing this and you're going, I'm mildly interested, I might want to see what this is about. Really what you're going to do is you're going to go sign up for a Trailhead account and immediately you're going to start training and you're going to get a couple of badges. You're going to learn a few things. You're probably going to be a little lost at first, but after a few hours training, you're going to start to grasp things. And then you're going to move through that. And as you move through this, you're going to earn badges. And then eventually you're going to say, I'm ready to take the certification test. So there are probably 15 or 20 different certifications, but the Salesforce administrator certification is the baseline first one that you're going to want to take. And once you take that and pass that certification, that's when employers are going to look at you and have a certain level of trust. And they're going to say, this guy is a certified Salesforce professional. I trust him to operate inside of our backend system for our company. And so let's give him a shot. So that's sort of how that works. Your first year, you know, your first job, if you have no IT background, you might come in at say $50,000, $65,000 a year. But the amazing thing about Salesforce is how quickly salaries ramp up over time. So once you complete your first couple of years, immediately you're going to be making probably close to $80,000, $90,000. And then after you get over the three-year hump is what I sort of refer to it as. The first three years are sort of the, the years where things are a little wish-washy. You're figuring out, do I want to be a, an analyst, a developer? a true administrator. And so you have these different paths you can go down depending on your interest. But after you get over the three-year mark, you're very quickly over $100,000 a year. And that pretty much goes for anybody. A very lucrative career path that ramps up really quickly. This is something that's been really beneficial to me. You know, out of college, this was my first job and this is all I've done for the last 10 years. And I really have no reason not to share this with other people because there is so much demand. There's no harm done to anyone who's already a professional in the field. So we're here with Bradley Rice talking about potential pivots during this time of shelter in place, especially if you are someone who's lost their job and are sitting around the house trying to figure out what skills you can attain. Salesforce seems to be a very reasonable option. Bradley, now tell me, what is the road then you take after you've gotten the Salesforce training? Do you become an independent contractor or are people taking these skills and being hired by large companies? You can go a couple of different routes. The normal route is to start applying for W-2 positions at local companies in your area. Because again, we talked about Salesforce has over 150,000 clients. There are going to be companies in your area that use Salesforce unless you're in a very rural you know, part of the country. You would typically go jump right into employment for like a W-2 job, working in an office. You typically work in the office for your first year. And then after that, you can choose to be remote if that's the route you want to take. Now, some people do choose to come right out of the gates and be contractors. That's a little bit different ballgame, I'll say, because when you're a contractor, there's a different level of responsibility you have to be in charge of your non-disclosure agreements, your contracts, your payment terms, all those types of things that if you're not familiar with running and operating a business, that can be a little overwhelming right out of the gates. But if you've operated a business in the past, if you've had an LLC, then yeah, you can jump right into contracting if that's the route you want to go. One of the things I could see people worrying about with Salesforce is that it's a fad. Most of us hadn't heard of it until recently, but now you tell me you've actually been doing it for 10 years. So this technology has been around for a long time and has stuck around, hasn't been misplaced or, or replaced by something else. That's exactly right. Salesforce sort of came along and the big dog in the game was Microsoft um, using a tool called Dynamics. They're still extremely popular, but they're by far the number two tool now. Over the last 10 to 12 years, Salesforce has not only entered the game and gotten a big piece of the pie, they've very much dominated 
the CRM game, if you will. And it's continued to grow. And they have a really interesting business model, much like a smartphone or you know a piece of technology like that, where you get Salesforce, like a phone when you pull it out of the box, and it has a very limited amount of functionality. However, they have what's called their app exchange, which is very much like the iPhone app store, where they have thousands and thousands of apps that are available for you to install, which makes Salesforce more and more powerful as a tool for pretty much any company out there. And the really incredible thing, again, whether you agree with this or not, is that you have these you know, companies out here who are doing development to create these apps to use on the Salesforce platform. Well, if one of those apps becomes overly popular, Salesforce will actually go out and purchase that piece of functionality. Say it's a tool that automates phone calling for Salesforce. And Salesforce can go out and say, hey, this is a really popular tool. We want to purchase it from you and make it a standard function of Salesforce. Therefore, they've got these developers out here doing research and development, making the tool even better. And then all they have to do is go out and drop a few million dollars, acquire the company, build it into Salesforce, So Salesforce, the tool is constantly getting better and better and better because of that business model that they have. And is there a robust continuing education program through the same training platform you were using to get certified? There is. Yeah. So Salesforce, like I mentioned before, they have 15 or 20 different certifications you can get. There are a core group of about five certifications that most people focus on. So you get that administrator certification, for example. And what happens next is, every year you have to maintain that certification. So they continue to have ongoing releases to make the product better. And then each year you have to take another exam to maintain your certification uh, so that they you know, make sure that you're qualified year over year to use the functionality that the tool has. And is all that still for free or do you have to pay fees as you get certified? The certification exam itself is $200 to take the test. If you wanna retake it because you fail it, that's a hundred bucks. But they also have free webinars that you can go watch to prepare for the test. And if you watch the webinar, they give you 100 bucks off the test. So you can really feasibly take the exam for $100. And then the maintenance used to be $50 a year per certification. But as of last year, the maintenance is completely free. Again, because they need more certified professionals. They want to clear away the barriers to entry. So they're basically taking the fees out of everything. I would not be surprised at all if you start seeing that, you know, the exams themselves are free for your first try or something like that before long. So I'm going to ask a funny question here. How big is the Salesforce Salesforce compared to the need? In other words, is there still lots of room for growth in this field? My friends and coworkers probably won't love this response, but that's okay. Yes, there's absolutely a need. There's plenty of room to get in. And you have to keep in mind, Salesforce is constantly selling their tool to more and more clients every day. The better the economy is doing, the better their sales are. Obviously, COVID has sort of thrown a wrench into that, but nothing major. Uh, So if the economy keeps on a, even just a typical growth, you should see Salesforce continuing to expand and needing more certified professionals. But even outside of that, having been a Salesforce consultant for the past six, seven years now, having worked with Salesforce for the last 10 years now, I can tell you with complete confidence that even the certified professionals in the workforce today 
I would say a solid 50% of those are not quality anyway. So there's plenty of room in the game to come in and, and be a Salesforce professional. And if you are a motivated person, if you're a focused person, if you care about your work etiquette, you're going to surpass everyone else who's already a certified professional very quickly. So I would say it would be very easy to have two or three years experience and be much more qualified than other people with seven or eight years experience just because you're an active, focused, motivated person and you're not lazy and trying to get by with the least amount possible. And it sounds like almost all Salesforce work can be done remotely. Is that true? Do you actually have to be technically on site to do any of this work? Technically, you don't have to be on site for any of the work that you're doing. It is a cloud-based program. So what that means is there's no software to install on a computer. There's no security issue as far as companies saying, We need you to be in the office on our IP address, logged into our internet in order to use this. All of that security is handled by Salesforce in the cloud. So that may not make a lot of sense to anyone, but no, you don't actually have to be on site to do anything. The on-site piece typically comes from company culture. Uh, You'll see it a lot with manufacturing companies. They have a much more in-office culture. And then you'll see it sometimes if you're in a management role, like you may be the Salesforce administrator, but you're constantly meeting with the sales manager and the customer support manager and maybe other leadership members of a company. Sometimes then you'll need to be on-site because you're constantly interacting with people who may have tight schedules. All right. So let's summarize this up. I am an 18-year-old who just finished high school, decided not to go to college, was working at the local Steak and Shake and got laid off because they're closed right now. I'm sitting around in my house. Six months from now, you're telling me I could be certified in Salesforce and possibly get a job paying $50,000, $60,000 a year? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a perfect fit. Whether you're 18 at Steak and Shake or you're 32 and you just got let go from your middle management position or whatever it may be, it's absolutely a good fit. Thanks, Bradley Rice, for coming on the show and talking to us about Salesforce. At this time when you're stuck in your home, sheltering in place is a good time to learn a new skill. Why not Salesforce? I believe your story is really powerful. And I think you're a perfect example of someone who's really learned to, again, not only accept themselves, but to thrive off of who you are. And uh, you're totally right. People don't talk about mental health and finances. And I would argue that a huge part of getting your finances in order is getting your brain in order. And we've argued it. We call Mm -hmm. it mindset. We call it all sorts of things, but it goes much deeper than that because sometimes it's not just deciding I'm going to think different right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a lot deeper about our fears Mm -hmm. and worries and compulsions. And uh, we need more people who talk about that. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was a pleasure. This was a really good podcast. I'm excited to share it whenever it's live. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily 
wherever you get your podcasts.